Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Ash Furrow. Ash is a software developer at Artsy, and he's also a big contributor to the Swift community, including Swift Open Source. Welcome to the show, Ash. Thanks a lot for having me. My pleasure. How's it going? It's going really well. It's uh, it's nice outside, but uh, I'm glad to be inside because it's also super hot out right now. It's hot. Where are you right now? <laughs> I'm based in New York, so it's the standard like New York summer heat stuff. Okay, yeah, I've been to New York in the summer, I think, like in August, maybe mm-hmm. it was, and it was pretty hot. So yeah, that's cool. You're in New York. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. What's it like being like a software developer in New York? Seems kind of cool. And, <laughs> I don't know, right? It's, yeah, I like it. I mean, you could go to Silicon Valley and be like every other software developer in Silicon Valley, and that's okay. But I feel like in New York, there's more to what's going around, what's going on around me than just software. Like there's entire industries that occupy parts of the city that aren't around software development, and I love like being a part of like a bigger picture instead of just, you know, a small piece. But that being said, the software developer community here is huge. There's uh, there's uh, iOS Soho is the biggest, uh, you know, iOS and Swift developer meetup uh, that meets like once a month, I think. Uh, my colleague Orta is speaking there soon. Uh, yeah, so it's just like every day there's seasons like there's something going on in the community for a meetup or something. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I guess New York is one of like the main cultural centers in the world. I mean, San Francisco too, but I feel like a lot of that is focused more down south, like past, you know, more south of uh, San Francisco and that whole Silicon Valley thing. But in New York, you're, you're totally right. I can imagine it's like you have like fashion, you have like entertainment, like Broadway, you have all that art where, you know, you see so you work at Artsy. Um, yeah, that's really cool. I never thought about that. And then I, on your Twitter, you say you live like in East Village. And like for some reason when I hear East Village, I think of like Bob Dylan or something. So I imagine you like <laughs> cruising around like Bob Dylan, like with your laptop instead of a guitar, you know, and you're just, like, <laughs> sitting at a Bohemian cafe, like drinking coffee or something. It's really fun <laughs> to just like head to a cafe. A lot of them have like backyards. So you're super secluded from the rest of the city and you feel like uh, I don't know, like you're somewhere else. Or even like there are community gardens that you can go to and bring a book or a laptop or whatever you want. It might not be Wi-Fi, but, uh, but mm, you know, a few steps, you can feel like you're not in New York anymore and you're in this like weird sort of calm environment. So for, you know, software developers, you know, cruising around the world looking for different opportunities, is there a lot of like software developer jobs that you know of or like a lot of startups in New York? I know of a couple. Like, for mm-hmm. instance, Makespace is, like, a pretty big new startup mm-hmm. that's there. Um, obviously, Artsy. And then um, uh, Fueled is, like, a big consultancy. They work in New York. Hmm. Is there, like, a lot of activity like that out there? Yeah. I, well, I mean, I think so. I've lived in uh, Toronto and Amsterdam. And um, New York definitely has the, the biggest software developer community that I've seen. And Amsterdam's is pretty great, too. Um, so, I mean, there's there's a lot of companies around here. Um, especially large ones too, like uh, Facebook has an office here. Oh um, wow! Yeah, uh, the Google has an office up on uh, can't remember where Flatiron area. So like, there are a lot of companies around, um, but uh, there are also some smaller companies and startups. Uh, I don't know, like I'm not too tapped into like the early stage startup community, but uh, 
for example, Time Hop is in the same building that Artsy's in, so we get to run into uh, Time Hop people in the elevator. It's pretty fun. But I think it is like one of the bigger startup scenes. I'm not sure, but I think it's probably up there, like number four or something. But yeah, well, right on. Thanks for like the little in, uh, kind of intro session to the developer <laughs> scene in New York. I mean, that sounds like fun. I, I mean, I might I might go out there one year. We'll see. Yeah, it's it's a All lot right. of fun. So I want to get to to know that you know that's why you're here. I want to get to know Ash, and uh, let's start by finding out what exactly you're up to, like right now. So you work at Artsy. What does that mean? What do you do there? What's that like? What are you guys working on? Totally. Uh, so I'm a member of the market team uh, or marketplace team, even though I'm an iOS developer primarily. Uh, I split off from the iOS team about uh, six or seven months ago and joined just a team to work on marketplace-related products. So mainly that's art auctions right now. And uh, we've just shipped a, a huge product. It took us six months to build from the back end to the front end on uh, web, mobile web, and uh, and mobile on iOS. Uh, so we have a live auction integration. So the sort of auctions where instead of eBay, you have like a going once, going twice, sold, that sort of thing, where the price keeps on increasing until no one else will bid more, and then that's the, the hammer price. We can okay. integrate with those sorts of auctions by having someone in the room on an iPad uh, that's representing all of our online bidders, and then they can reflect the in-room bidding activity back to our online users. So it's this, um, like, when I think about the scope of this project that we've built, uh, it's it's phenomenal. Uh, phenomenal. Like, it, it's just huge um, from, uh, you know, client side, uh, from the user's perspective who's bidding on this to an artsy admin's perspective who's, like, trying to keep up with the auctioneer in the room. Um, and getting that data real time from the from the room to our servers to all of our users as fast as possible, um, while also showing it in a really slick interface. It was uh, it's been a, a fun project, and now that it's launched, uh, we get to go into a little bit of a maintenance mode. So I'm going back and addressing some technical debt, adding tests to things that I didn't have time to test for originally when we were sort of pushing to get this done by a deadline. Uh, and and it's really fun to go back and reevaluate some of the decisions that I made. Uh, you know, I worked with Orta on this, so we were we were sort of tag teaming different parts of it. And uh, some of the decisions we made because they're familiar, maybe they're influenced a little bit by Objective C or Ruby or some of the other languages that we know. But um, you know, going back now, we can sort of see where things uh, worked well and where they didn't, and. Um, reflect on our choices and, and maybe improve them a little bit as we go back and fix bugs and add new features. What's the name of the project? I think, you know, and everything's mm -hmm. like open source at Artsy, right? So like if somebody wanted to go check it out on GitHub. Yeah, all of our iOS code is open source. Uh, this project's called Eigen, and uh, everything that we work on is under the uh, live auctions folder. Okay, Eigen. What's up with the artsy names like Eigen <laughs> and Edelson or something like that, right? Yeah. So at Artsy, all of our programming projects are uh, named after physics terms. Um, I think that comes from the the original like art meets tech uh, side of the company. So everything like our our web front end is called Force. There's our uh, gravity is our our back end. Microgravity is our web front end. And the thing is with iOS projects, they all start with the letter E, which is kind of, uh, <laughs> the number of projects keeps growing. We're running out of physics terms. So there's Eigen, Energy, Eidolon, Emission. Um, I think that's it at the moment. Um, emergence. I'm, I'm, I didn't take physics, so I can't, <laughs> yeah, emergence, I guess. I don't know. So I, I can't yeah. think of any, but. 
it's a big problem because like (laughs) right like exactly we're running out of them and also i think it it uh creates a little bit of a schism between our non-technical colleagues and us and uh usually when we are talking to someone who's not a programmer you know we'll we'll try to make sure that they know what eigen is so we might say uh the artsy ios app instead of eigen okay Um, it's tricky (laughs) All right, so that sounds like a really interesting uh, project, and there was a lot of stuff in there, but mm-hmm. now I want to get into you specifically. So you're working at Artsy. That's really awesome. And, and I don't know, the whole, like, open source thing, Artsy's open source by default. Like, I love all that. But And that's, like, it seems like a really big part of your life right now. But, like, how did mm-hmm. you get there? Where did you start? Where did you come from? Were you born in New York and, like, you were already right. coding and already working at Artsy? I think I actually read a little bit about how... Like you applied to Artsy because, um, <laughs> uh, you know, Artsy talks a lot about like getting a job. And I mm-hmm. think you you talked openly about how you got your job at Artsy. But like, where did you come from and like, how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, it's quite a story. I grew up in Atlanta, Canada. I went to university there. Uh, my wife and I moved to Toronto so she could attend grad school. Uh, after three years there, I, you know, kind of bounced around a few startups worked at a design agency called TNLAX, just doing basically a bunch of like mobile prototypes. Um, and that was kind of fun, but I really missed like a feeling of ownership towards what I was building. So uh, I left TNLAX and my wife and I decided, hey, let's move somewhere that's just totally new, totally outside our comfort zone. Uh, and we chose Amsterdam because there's a, a great tech community there. Um, the, everyone pretty much speaks English, so that's a huge win. Uh, we don't need to learn the local language. And, um, and it just seemed like a really cool place to go. And we spent a year there on a, a, a working holiday visa, and everything was great. But uh, I found a job while I was still living in Canada. So I found a job out there. I get there, and um, it's, it's awful. I, I really don't like this job. So I quit. And around the same time, Orda and I both spoke at a conference uh, called MDevCon. Uh, so we were both speaking independently. We got together, did some pair programming on CocoaPod stuff. And he said that if I ever was looking for a job, uh, that I should direct message him on Twitter. Uh, so I did, <laughs> and uh, that sort of got the ball rolling. I got to meet the, uh, the CTO over Skype. I flew to London to meet with um, a data scientist, engineer, and a gallery liaison. Those were the two people who interviewed me, and I really appreciated the fact that I wasn't just being interviewed for like technical skills or there's no whiteboard involved. It was all trying to make sure that... Um, my values were aligned with uh, with Artsy's values, and we were congruent on in terms of what we wanted to do, what we valued in terms of art and creativity, and uh, and that led me to Artsy. I finished my Dutch uh, visa and moved to New York uh, about a year and a half ago, and uh, that's that's basically how I ended up where I am now. What was the conference you were speaking at? Where you oh, met Orta? Right. It was called MDevCon. It's a it's a really great conference. It's held in this. Uh, the Chichinsky Theater, which is this really amazing old world movie theater. It's got like crushed velvet everywhere. It, it's it's wow. a phenomenal venue. Yeah. What was the talk you gave? Um, it was on React Coco, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I can't believe I remember that. Uh, yeah, I had talked about React Coco, and Orta gave a talk on uh, the roadmap to Coco Pods 1.0, which of course now has been released. So, is that talk online? Uh, yeah, I can send you a link to it. Okay, cool. So MDevCon, yeah, I'll uh, I'll make sure we have that for sure. Cool. All right, so you went from Canada to Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. but where, like, where did you 
Were you born in Canada? Yep. Okay. And yep. then like, when did you start programming? In high school? In college? That's a good question. Um, it was sort of like high school. Um, like I had played around with this old like VTech toy computer. It had like a single line LCD display, um, but it, it had basic. <laughs> so I was programming on basic when I was like eight or nine or something. It came with books that you could like program a game and then you got to play the game that you just wrote by copying code from a book. Super weird. Um, but in the, <laughs> I know it, it's, it's thinking back. I feel like crazy. I've heard this before actually. Yeah. I I've feel seen like other I heard people this tweet before. like a picture of this same computer. I feel like, uh, whoever manufactured this had like a real big impact on the world that they might not be aware of. Do you remember what um, the uh, computer or the game was called? It was called VTech. That was the manufacturer. And, uh, I can't remember. It had like a QWERTY keyboard and everything. It was, it was, was it like a space game or something? No, I can't even remember what the games were. were. <clears throat> they were like um, Simon Says or something silly like that. Okay. Um, I feel but like it taught I me the basics, like variables, user input, that kind of stuff. And then you just stuck with it? Yeah. Well, you I mean, know. sort of. Uh, I, I explored some electronic stuff and um, did a lot of like soldering and things like that until high school. Um, we didn't have an internet connection and our computer like barely ran Windows 98. So I didn't have access to uh, a lot of the tools that, that some of the people who have been programming longer than I have, they had access to. So what I would do, um, I found out that you can write JavaScript even without an internet connection. Like you can write it in your web browser and you can run code locally. Right. So I found a printer at school that I could print from without having to deduct print credits. <laughs> and print off um, a few reams of JavaScript tutorials and HTML tutorials and all, uh, even a few C++. Because I convinced a teacher to let me into the teacher's lounge. That's where the only CD burner in the school was. And uh, I burnt a C++ compiler. So like I kind of cut my teeth on JavaScript and C++, which are like two really different programming languages. And, and uh, eventually I got to college and uh, took off with Java and C and... Uh, eventually Objective-C, and that kind of spiraled into uh, Swift. Somehow, behind every programmer, there's always some, like, devious, mischievous, <laughs> like, story. Like, uh, Just Dave and Josh Avant, who I interviewed recently, like, both um, got into programming through modding their Xbox. <laughs> you know, and, like, you're, like, here, like, convincing... Awesome. Yeah, you're, like, here convincing, like, your, um, you know, teacher to let you into the teacher's lounge to, like, mm -hmm. burn CDs and... So did you like give those tutorials out or did you use them for yourself or did you like have any buddies you're like sharing them with and you guys were like learning using these yeah. different CDs? Yeah, so I spent a lot of time doing distance ed in um, rural New Brunswick. The high school systems aren't really set up to teach you programming, but there were a few like uh, courses that you could take on Visual Basic and Java that uh, I was really keen on. There were a few other people too. Uh, and I had to be careful because one time the distance ed teacher like found one of, one of these many binders of tutorials and said, you didn't print this out at school, did you? And I had to like, oh, no, no, I, that's all from home. I just brought it in. Wow, this like yeah. secret like learning to program club. Like, Jesus, kids <laughs> just want to learn to program. Like, come on. Yeah, exactly. He was pretty supportive of, uh, of everything, though. Um, so it was nice to have like one person who was like on my side who like wanted me to learn coding, uh, even though... You know, my family, um, they're not really uh, academically minded. Like I'm the only, I'm the first person of my uh, family to go to university or leave the province, uh, sorry, the, the area. Um, and 
it felt like I don't know. They didn't really see the value in just like playing around on a computer. Like I don't know how mm. often you heard that growing up. Like, oh, you're just playing around on the computer. But like, no, right. I'm I'm actually trying to learn something. And uh, you know, now my parents sort of see the value in, in what I was working on. But at the time, uh, you know, I, I I really just had this one teacher for support. Yeah. No. I there was never really like computers were a valuable thing. It was like, yeah, you could use a computer to do some work. But like for me, it was always like, Garrick's going to become a lawyer. You know, and like even now, um, I don't think my mom entirely like understands what I do and like appreciates that it's way cooler than being a lawyer. Like she <laughs> thinks like lawyer means like prestigious and stuff like that. Gotcha. But whatever. All right. So then how did you end up getting into iOS? It sounds like you were programming throughout like high school and maybe even college. Like, mm-hmm. Did you graduate with a computer science degree? Yep. Yep. I had okay. uh, I graduated the CS degree. Um, a few years before that, I started messing around with uh, Objective-C. Uh, I really wanted to make iPhone apps, but um, all I could afford was a netbook, so I, I built a Hackintosh. Nice. And, uh, yeah, like I had this really old G4 PowerBook, but you needed an Intel Mac in order to, uh, to run the iOS simulator in SDK. So I started out on Hackintosh and uh, borrowed my, uh, my fiancé's computer. She had like a, a newer MacBook. And uh, just over the course of, like, it was Christmas break, 2009, uh, I really dug into it. My friend Jason Brennan, he was available on uh, Google Wave to answer all of my questions. Uh, and I built my first application, submitted it to the store. It helped you make coffee, which sounds really silly, but, you know, it was it was something that I wanted, so I built it. And, uh, and I put it up on the store for, like, 99 cents and sold, like, 30 coffees to my friends or something. But um, but that year I applied for a WWDC scholarship and uh, that um, little app that I wrote kind of catapulted me into this uh, this conference. I had no idea what I was what I was signing up for. Uh, my wow. parents, let, yeah, I, like I didn't even know what the conference was. I just saw like scholarship application form, and you're a student. You're like, of course, scholarships. I'll apply for anything. <laughs> and uh, my parents let me money for. Um, for a flight and hotel, and uh, yeah, that that week that I spent at WWDC 2010 was just like amazing. I got I like I attended every session. Uh, the iPad SDK was still pretty new, so I learned all about that. And uh, that was the year that blocks were introduced. And I've been doing some C sharp and some internships, so I got to see the the sort of similarities between Objective C blocks and C sharp, uh, you know, Lambda expressions, that kind of stuff. And it was just like a, a really transformative period. I started building more apps and doing some contracting after that. And when I graduated in 2011, my wife and I moved to Toronto. And uh, like I said, I bounced around a few startups there. I spent a lot of time at 500 Pixels. Wait, so blocks in Objective-C were introduced in 2010? Oh, sorry, no. Uh, they were introduced a few years earlier, but only for the Mac. So they were introduced on iOS in 2010. Uh, the whole Grand Central Dispatch was only, uh, only for the Macs until then. Okay, so yeah, I do remember Grand Central Dispatch being announced. I didn't know the context of it, though. I just remember, like, everyone going, oh, yeah. and I'm like, okay, this must be important, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, like, oh, wow. looking back on it now, it's hard to imagine programming in iOS without the idea of a callback. Like, the idea is just so foundational to the way we work now that thinking back to what it was like before that, it, it's uncomfortable. 
Right on, right on. All right, so that's cool. Yeah, actually, I just interviewed someone yesterday, uh, Maximilian, who lives in San Francisco. He was also a Dub Dub scholarship winner. So I don't know. It's really interesting. Like, what a coincidence. Mm-hmm. But he said the experience was really cool, and he he like recommends anybody that you know that qualify to apply. So definitely, it, you had a good experience. It sounds like. I definitely did. I applied to go the next year, but I was graduating, and I knew I didn't really qualify. I applied anyway, but I didn't get it. Um, and so I skipped a year, and then the year after that, uh, that was the first year, I think 2012, that it sold out in like two hours, and then the next year it was like 71 seconds. It was, uh, yeah, so I haven't been to like every WWDC since, but uh, it's I've gone back a few times, and it's always been really fun. But that first year was just like magical for me. So would you say up until your job with Artsy, you were more of like a independent iOS, like you were kind of doing it as a hobby, or were you actually doing iOS work like as an employee or something like that, like a consultant? Yeah, no, for I, other was companies? Doing it, I was doing it as a job um, for a couple startups in Toronto. The big one was 500 Pixels. Uh, I spent 18 months there and built their iPad app from scratch for like iOS 5, I think we were targeting at the time. Um, or maybe even iOS 4. And I was really excited because Collection Views came out in uh, iOS 6, and uh, I wrote a b- bunch of blog posts about them. And back then, people actually cared about like not breaking the NDA for the new iOS SDK. Right. So I had like a bunch of blog posts queued up, and then the day that the NDA was lifted, I published uh, all of these posts on Collection Views, and a publisher got in contact and was like, hey, you've got some really cool content here. Uh, what do you think about writing a book? And that what? sort of... Yeah, I know, right? Um, like, my blog has been so influential as well. Like, I've pretty much since the beginning, I've been writing about, like, you know, I don't understand NSRA, and then I blog about it, and someone suggests something on Twitter, or I learn about it, and I write a follow-up post. Um, and I just, uh, I kind of gamed the, the idea that you know, collection views were new and exciting. I was really excited about them. Um, so I wrote a bunch of tutorials and stuff, and uh, they gained a lot of popularity because everyone wanted to know about this new thing. And I just happened to be there with uh, blog posts, and no one had really done this too much yet. I mean, now it's it's pretty standard for everyone to like write about the new stuff in iOS. But back then, I feel like the iOS blogging community was a lot smaller. And I just, uh, I was in the right place at the right time, got a bunch of popular posts, and uh, eventually got a book deal. I'm looking at it right now. Is it the uh, UI collection view, the complete guide? Yeah, exactly. I wrote a, an edition for iOS 6, and then like the next year, I think four months after the, the book published, uh, iOS 7 came out with like a bunch of new SDKs for UI collection view, plus a whole new look and feel. So all the screenshots in the book were, were out of date. All of the Xcode screenshots were out of date. Like, everything had to be redone. And then I'm looking at this functional reactive programming on iOS. So you're using Reactive Cocoa in this book? Yeah, that book's a few years old. Um, so it's it's all Objective-C and stuff. Uh, the principles, like streams and, uh, you know, processing reactions to model updates instead of accessing state, like, all that stuff still applies. Um, but it's not the... Uh, it's not, like, for Swift. It, yeah, I think... It still targets like iOS six or something like that, or iOS okay. eight. Yeah, so it's a bit outdated, but um, but that one I um, I published myself, uh, so I don't really like working with publishers anymore. Oh, okay, I see. All right, so why don't we do this? Let's get start talking about like your experience with Swift and stuff like that, and that kind of you know we could talk a little bit about how we met too. It's literally because you are 
big in the community, right? Like, um, I don't know exactly like how or why, but like whatever. You're like one of the what I call like the Swift rock stars. You know, there's a few out there, and I would say like you're, you're one of them, and that's really awesome. And thank you so much for being like that person, um, no especially problem. as it relates to um, for yeah, my pleasure. Um, especially as it relates to I, I feel like MBVM and functional reactive. Like, if there's anyone mm-hmm. out there, at least in the states. Um, that's talking about it because it seems like it's really big in like Europe and stuff. There's a lot of like European like names I hear like, re, you know, re, I don't know. That seems like to me. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the Arc Swift uh, creator and core maintainers are, are mostly based in Europe. So okay. Yeah. yeah see, there you go. <laughs> so yeah. So that's kind of how we met. It's just because I have seen you on the interwebs right and so i hit you up and you're like you know i said hi and you're like hey how can i help you like all nice and stuff so thank you for being so nice and then that was it i just said hey i want to interview you and here you are so like ash and i have actually never really talked that much before um online or anything like that and we never met person so thank you for being uh cool and nice um you know part of the community it's really important uh that's what what we need we need more of that and uh, there's a lot of mm-hmm. people out there who are new to programming and because there are people like you out there who are offering up so much information and in addition to like to that themselves you know um, it makes it easier and it makes it more welcoming so it's really cool mm-hmm. um, okay so on, on that note uh, when did you start uh, writing swift because it sounds like you were doing objective c you were making mm-hmm. you know, objective c app or apps in objective c like when did you start learning swift uh, the day it came out, <laughs> I, was, nice. I was so excited um, when uh, Craig Federighi was up on the stage and he said something like, uh, what about Objective-C without the C? And I was so excited because uh, four months earlier, I wrote a, a blog article called uh, We Need to Replace Objective-C. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, nothing I wrote in that article was really new. I just sort of rehashed the same arguments that other people have been making, especially John Syracuse since like 2011, I think he's been saying this. Um, because not having a modern programming language is going to become a competitive disadvantage to Apple. I mean, it won't because we have Swift now, but, uh, you know, in, it takes a decade, decades, in order to replace your primary programming language. I mean, Microsoft is still doing it. They're still trying to get people on .NET instead of, like, Win32 APIs. Um, So, you know, they need to start before it's embarrassing for them. And uh, and they did. They I think Swift started development, you know, under secret wraps in, like, 2011, 2010 or so. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, uh, And so I wrote this article, and everyone was mad. Because, you know, what? The, yeah, exactly. Right. The mad on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loved Objective-C. They liked its weird syntax. They liked Foundation, which Foundation is awesome. Um, but we get Foundation with Swift. And uh, so I wrote this article and then they announced Swift and I was so happy. I'm not like a, a told you so kind of person. I was just happy that we got a new programming language, um, you know, like. This is something that uh, that I believe that we needed as a as a community and as an industry, and here it was, and we got it. And then then it was going to be open source the next year, and that was so exciting. And it's been fun uh, since day one, just like playing with the betas and uh, and writing in a new language, finding the rough edges of the language in the compiler, and interacting with the. Um, I mean, I don't do as much. Uh, I don't traffic the Swift Evolution mailing list as much as I, I maybe should, but 
Uh, I follow, there's a few different people online who aggregate the, you know, currently under review proposals, and I try and uh, keep on top of them. Um, and uh, it's just been, it's been a lot of fun. I'm surprised that you knew four months before, at least, uh, Swift was announced that Apple, sh- you know, should release a new language, that it would be a competitive mm-hmm. advantage to do so or a competitive disadvantage if they didn't. Um, right. I was totally surprised when Swift was announced, and it seemed like everybody else was. So it sounds like only you and John Syrac- Syracuse <laughs> were thinking this. I don't know, maybe more people, but there were after, so so. But afterwards, once Swift mm-hmm. was was out, I had time to because re- once Swift when Swift came out, I had no idea about programming really at all. You know, I was into the dub dub like sessions and stuff. I'd watch them, but I had no idea what it really meant. But once I, uh, be, you know, learned um, to you know to do iOS development to be an iOS developer. Once I learned Swift and like how to, once I got more into it, then I realized, yeah, totally. This makes sense that they should have done that. If they didn't release Swift, they would be mm-hmm. at a tor- like a disadvantage. You're totally right, um, and I think that's really awesome um, that you that you. I want to want to read that uh, post or I'll link to it for sure. sure. Um, and I I feel like I hear this a lot that people you know love Objective C and almost kind of like have this thing against. Um, Swift, and I also read this article um, recently. iOS Dev Weekly um, linked oh, to it, something about the churn or whatever. I don't know yeah. if you saw that. <laughs> and um, you know, I'm reading the article, and like, I'm I'm getting, I'm starting to get. Like, I understand some of it. Um, I started agreeing. There's like two two voices, right? And like, there's like the mm-hmm. kind of positive voice and the negative voice. And like, I'm starting to agree with the positive voice, but then the mm-hmm. positive voice starts saying like something about. Um, object oriented and functional are mutually exclusive and that's one thing I don't um, mm-hmm. understand like I don't agree with that like functional yeah. is like a style is like a it's it's at odds with imperative right so you can still do object oriented and functional right and imperative sure. right but like it's like you either do a functional you can make this one line of code functional or you can make it imperative mm-hmm. I think it's okay so I'm well, like yeah, yeah go sorry go ahead no no, no it's it's their, their argument is uh I disagree with it too. Um, I really don't think that they're mutually exclusive at all. Okay, that you can do object-oriented and functional. Sure. I mean, like, uh, so there was this amazing talk at a, a conference I can send you um, where Gramley said, uh, basically, there is the, the distinction between functional programming language and uh, functional programming and uh, imperative or even object-oriented. Like, the line we draw there is arbitrary and okay. doesn't really exist. And he showed um, building with the solid principles uh, through Haskell coming to object, like building object-oriented programming through Haskell, building functional programming through Java. Uh, it, I mean, where we draw the line is just a matter of where we're comfortable drawing it. And so for, I mean, I agree with a lot of the things that um, Bob Martin says, the author of this uh, article, but they're uh, really negative and, and they're not the sort of um, voice that I want us to be listening to. Right. Uh, right. The main thing, though, when I started disagreeing with him was mm-hmm. basically he was saying that, like, we're we should just like we're not really making progress, essentially. And uh, he wasn't talking specifically about Swift, but I took it as like, well, let me let me look. Let me, uh, you know, listen to what he's saying and apply it to Swift. Like, if, if we're going to listen to this guy and, and not introduce Swift, well, then I'm not a programmer, probably. And a bunch of people are probably not going to become programmers. And that's, like, the main issue I take uh, with that article. And that, that's sort of why I'm bringing it up. Like, it seems to me 
like Objective C was sort of this like um, club and it was like this barrier. And it's like if you could overcome this barrier, you could like join the club. And the people in the club kind of liked that the barrier was so high, mm-hmm. um, kind of in like a in like a hoardish kind of way, like kind of hoarding this like little thing, this secret in this club. Yeah. Swift is the exact opposite, I think. And I want to know if you agree, like it's so welcoming, it's so accessible. And, and as you just stated, like that's so important, I think, to Apple's success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the, um, I mean, I think the community that uses Swift is uh, on the whole maybe more welcoming than the community that used Objective-C. Um, that might be historical because, I mean, Objective-C has been around for a very long time. Um, people have been using it since the 80s to build software. And like Steve uh, Jobs era. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's it's understandable to be um, protective of that. I mean, the, the small community that they that they have the small but effective. I mean, they've built amazing software um, right. for the Mac f- since before it was OS X. Um, but there's there's a cost to that. I mean, the term I like to apply is uh, insular. Like they're very, um, you know, uh, tight knit in a good way and also in a bad way. Um, and Swift sort of, um, I think, knocked them sideways a little bit. Uh, and maybe they needed that. Um, some people felt a little um, hurt or let down. And I think that's that's understandable too. But uh, in the long run, I think that the entire community has benefited from the new language. And uh, I think that the community today versus the community you know, two years ago before Swift, um, we've come a really long way. Um, or was it three years ago? Anyway, I can't even remember how long it's been now. Swift just feels like it's been around forever. But uh, I think it's uh, going on three years. It's like it's going on its third year. Yeah, like it. I mean, that's that's great, and the community is is great. Um, the the key metric I like to look at is how many build tools we're making, and we're making lots of build tools. I mean, it used to be that your options for managing dependencies were uh, you can either drag and drop files in manually or you can use get submodules and now we have CocoaPods, we have conch we have carthage and we have uh, swift package manager and we have all of these different tools available for us to help us use open source software and on that foundation we can build better software um, and and that's what i'm really excited about is that uh, i mean we're we're welcoming not just to, to new people but we're welcoming to new ideas in a way that we weren't before um, if you look at the, the web developer community, specifically around like Node, uh, even Ruby, um, they have amazing build tools. They take uh, programmer productivity very seriously, and they have some flaws just like any community. I mean, maybe they're a little too reliant on open source software, as we saw with LeftPad, but they also don't have a really great foundation library like iOS does. So I think that when we look and see how our community has become more welcoming. Part of it is the ideas and the idea that we need a some sort of uh, open source dependency manager. I mean, that led to the creation of CocoaPods, and that led to a whole legacy of building uh, uh, developer tools. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to take a look at other programming communities, welcome in members of their communities, and also uh, welcome in the the best ideas that they have that they can share, and we can all benefit from them. What's the left pad thing that you mentioned? Oh, so there's um, there was a node package called uh, left pad, 
and it, all it did was left pad strings with um, to make sure that they're a certain length. So it just added an uh, empty space onto the beginning of a string. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it's. I think the whole module was 12 lines of code. Um, and uh, due to reasons that I, won't, I don't really want to get into, the, the maintainer decided to remove it from NPM's registry. So basically yank the... Uh, the module off, so anyone who had continuous integration or continuous deployment, which is basically everyone in the web community, all <laughs> of a sudden, if they depended on LeftPad, then their um, their builds broke, their deploys broke. You know, their entire job just like ground to a halt uh, <laughs> because this one person removed their package, um, and uh, npm restored it and everything. There's a lot of politics around, uh, you know, who owns that code or who owns the the package, um, but. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if the person who yanked it knew that they were depended on by, um, you know, some other small package that's depended on by, I think it was like Rails or something, like a really popular project that broke everyone's builds. Uh, I don't know if they knew that or if that would change their decision, but, um, you know, it, people pointed to this incident and said, you know, haha, uh, the JavaScript community, the Node community, they're too reliant on open source. This is silly. No one should have a, a left pad module. But... I, I don't necessarily agree with that argument. I think that um, using open source is great. It comes with risks. Uh, this was a, a manifestation of that risk, and it sucks that everyone's build broke for a day, but, you know, no one... I don't think anyone's businesses, you know, failed because they couldn't deploy for a few hours. Um, it, it, it frustrates me that, uh, that the Internet you know, commentary people have jumped on this as an, an example of like over-dependence on open source when it's really just, uh, it's a risk that we all take and uh, I think that we should all be comfortable with it. When did this happen? I didn't hear about it. Oh, it was, uh, gosh, I think it's coming up on a year ago. Um, okay. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I've, I've talked to some of the people who work at NPM and uh, it's real. And NPM is Node Package Manager? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's like the CocoaPods for uh, writing JavaScript on your server. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and it sucks for them because, like, everyone makes fun of this this giant community now. And, and to be working at the company that manages this community is, like, that gets kind of tough sometimes. I wonder why it was so important to have left padding, though, on your web, on your website. Is that, like, a known was issue like or something? Logging or something, like... It, it really boggles my mind how limited the JavaScript like core APIs are. I tried to oh, okay. format a date yesterday using JavaScript, and it, it's it's ridiculously complex. Like I couldn't parse the date as I had it, so I had to use regular expressions and then do this other weird thing with a, a non-standard format string. Like it was really, really complicated. So, I mean. If, if you have to do everything yourself, if you have to build these little modules around your code base just to do the, just to write the parts of your application that make your application unique, of course I would use LeftPad because like it's it's a no-brainer. Like why would I write those 12 lines which might have a bug and I have to maintain when I can just use the code that everyone else is using? Um, I think you bring up a good point and I never really had a chance to talk to, to someone about that because most of the people I interview are very, you know, iOS, Swift um, specific, but it sounds like you have mm -hmm. a little bit of like general software development um, experience. So like a lot of the listeners are new to programming, you know, they might mm -hmm. have zero to a year's worth of experience and right. um, they're jumping into iOS, but they might still be like trying to think like, should they do web versus iOS? And like my feeling is as long as you have like a 
just like a little bit of foundational programming like knowledge, which to me is like you watch like a two hour video on like lynda.com with Sam and Allardyce, right? Mm-hmm. That iOS is like so well integrated um, that it, it's like almost like it to me, it's like the, one of the best platforms to learn programming on because of like the issue you just mentioned. Like we have date formatters, mm-hmm. we have foundation, we have all these great APIs so that you can focus on what's unique to your application. Whereas uh, to me, like web, I don't know that much about it, but it does seem more like the wild, wild west. Yeah. I mean, some of that is just that no one controls the web. I mean, Apple really controls the ecosystem in a way that uh, very few other uh, platform vendors can or do. Um, and they do provide some some great APIs. They provide some okay APIs or some you know not so go- okay APIs, but they're there and uh, and they provide the tools. I mean, storyboards are a wonderful way to learn iOS, especially now that right. they're on on uh, uh, sorry not storyboards, <laughs> playgrounds interface builder. Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, playgrounds. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're both great. Uh, I love storyboards too. Uh, drag and drop uh, user interface uh, is fantastic, especially with live rendering. Um, and but, when you're just starting out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how cool is it to just like a drag from a button onto your code and then write some code and then it just works. Um, yeah. That's, I so mean, that's you're talking of, about. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. That's that sort of principle of like not having to write code. Like the, the best code is the code you don't even have to write. And if you look back when, um, when Steve Jobs rejoined Apple, he used this really apt metaphor of, um, of a, an operating system being um, a foundation of a building or, or the foundational like stories of a building. Uh, any given like garage of uh, programmers, like they can only build maybe four stories of an application. And if you start on a, on a, a 10 story operating system and you build four stories up, then that's 14 stories. So that's right. the best you can aim for. But on a, a better uh, operating system with better foundation support and better um, tools, you can start on the 20th floor and then all of a sudden your application is just uh, a heck of a lot better just from having started on a better operating system. It's easier to write and uh, and you can start at a much better spot. And um, when I see people, especially from outside the Node community, kind of look down and laugh at um, people who are starting on the 10th floor and we got to start on the 20th floor, like that's kind of mean, I think. Um, but Apple can make that like 20th story building, whereas in the um, web world, you've got um, Rails. Uh, you have different programming languages, right? Like there's Rails and Django, or you could build in um, uh, Sales, I think, or like Rust, all, Go. <laughs> exactly, right? Like all of these different, I mean, you could even call them competing frameworks and languages. Um, and, uh, you know, when you compare that to Apple's, there are pros and cons to each one, but. I think it's wrong of us to look down on on them. Uh, they're doing the best they can too. I think it's going to be interesting as the Swift uh, open source community grows to see like the different applications of the language. For the mm-hmm. most part, it seems like we've just seen Swift on Apple devices and Swift mm-hmm. on the server, and even that's just still pretty new. And then I've seen a little bit of like Swift on Android. Mm-hmm. Have you uh, have you played around with any of that stuff? And I'm wondering like. Will we be able to do, I wonder, like uh, computer vision type stuff and like that type of thing with mm. Swift? That's what I'm um, excited for because when I hear about some other programmers, like for instance, like programmers at like a company like SpaceX or Tesla, mm-hmm. like the type of programming they're doing, it makes me feel like the programming I'm doing is like, oh, that's just like user interface, like mobile client stuff. Right. Like yeah. That's not real programming. 
like I'm doing machine learning and I'm like, well, maybe one day Swift can like do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the creators behind Swift and Apple, their, their whole thing is to create a, a general purpose programming language. So you could write anything from an application to like an operating system or something in Swift. Um, so I think we'll get there eventually. I haven't, right uh, I haven't used Swift on uh, other platforms yet, partially because I've been so busy uh, with this live auction project all year, but uh, partially because um, I just, well, it's just I haven't had the time to yet. Um, and since I've had more time now that the project's over, I'm, I'm exploring uh, Swift Playgrounds on the iPad as an educational tool. So I haven't had too much time to dig into other platforms. I mean, you can't do everything, right? You've got to pick oh, and choose totally. where to spend your time. Yeah, I played around with uh, Swift Playgrounds on the iPad a little bit. Are you thinking mm-hmm. about maybe doing like a like a Swift Playground? I don't know, is it called a book? A Swift Playground yeah. book? Yeah, that's right. Um, that's what they're called, and that's what I'd like to do. Um, they're very new, and there aren't a lot of tools around them. Um, I'm working on a, a linter right now, so you can um, make sure that I mean. The books are basically just a series of folders with specific names, and there's some XML files in there that uh, tell Swift Playgrounds like where stuff lives, basically. Um, so I've built a tool and, and uh, been getting a lot of help from uh, from another developer interested in this um, to lint this, make sure that you've got your XML right, that all your folders are correctly structured, and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's, it is very much like a Wild West. Um, I think Apple... Uh, could provide, you know, some better tools on that. Maybe they didn't have time. Maybe they're choosing to let the community do this, um, which a cynic might say is just getting us to do free work for them. But um, I really like the format of the book and the APIs that they've constructed um, so that you can um, write code and see it executed live um, and maintain, like, a cross-process communication of, like, the live code can continue to run as you write your code. Um, that's amazing. Um, they've got features so when you're writing a Swift Playground book, you can hide a lot of the code and um, focus on exactly what the user uh, or the learner needs to to read and write in order to um, you know learn how to use uh, whatever API it is that you're teaching. Um, I'm really excited about the idea of a, a collection view book. I don't know if I'm gonna follow through with it. I've got an outline and I've got like a Hello World book. Um, we'll see. But uh, just the idea of, of being able to gradually introduce users, or sorry, learners to, um, you know, collection views are a very large API, and uh, they can be overwhelming to learn at first. And being able totally. to hold the learner's hand and help them bit by bit see more and more of, of how things work under the hood, I mean, I think that that just presents a, a really appealing, like, idea to me as uh, someone who, who likes to teach yeah, I feel like um, collection view is sort of a little harder. Like you, when you first start learning iOS development, you learn table view, and then you know that mm-hmm. there's this thing called collection view, and you talk to someone, and they're like, "Yeah, just use collection view because it's more customizable." And you're yeah. like, "Okay," and then you start looking into it, and you're like, "Collection view delegate flow layout? Like, what is that? And do I have to create <laughs> my own?" And yeah, um, so that's actually something that I haven't spent that much time. Um, looking into and I'd like to learn a little bit more about that but I want to go back to linting you mentioned that so just for Mm -hmm. uh, everyone that doesn't know I'm I'm, I'm learning this concept um, just you know recently we started talking about it at Farmers uh, for our new project and my understanding is that it is uh, like a a, a file you have like a I don't know what the file is called like a lint file YML or something I think yep and you say like these are the the rules that I want you to follow for my 
um, coding language style, um, let's say like the, the, the style that I want you, you know, that we want to enforce at our company, let's say. And mm-hmm. then you install, you can install like a plugin, for instance, I think, uh, in Xcode. And it just kind of constantly runs like alongside, or you could do it this way at least. It constantly runs alongside the compiler and is like, hey, you have some trailing white space or hey, this line's too long. Is that sort of like the general idea? Yeah, exactly. So what you're talking about is uh, linting uh, source code specifically, which is a, okay. a great use of, of the idea of linting. Linting just makes sure that you don't have any um, things that are seriously wrong with something. That can be source code. It could be uh, a, a book. In the case of, of Playgrounds, it could be um, a CocoaPod uh, library can be linted to make sure that uh, all the files are there and it compiles and everything. It's not missing uh, any information like who wrote it. Um, you can lint different things, and linting just means you know make sure that this is valid. Whatever it is, make sure it's valid. So when I wrote a, a playground book linter, basically you give it from the command line, you say um, lint this book, and it will go through and say, okay, I found these problems with the book. Um, you've got a, a directory that's misnamed. Uh, you've got a typo in your XML, that kind of stuff. So when you say you built a linter, like how do you do something like that? In your that's, case, how did you do that? That's a great question. Um, so I've been working with Ruby more and more recently. Uh, it started about two years ago when I joined Artsy. Um, I start, I, like, I've always wanted to learn Ruby, and I've always wanted to become more of like a, a polyglot. That's someone who like, is comfortable in more than one language. Um, and uh, at Artsy, I'm fortunate because I have all these colleagues who have experience in Ruby and who I can turn to if I need help. Um, so that's what I did. I, um, I created a Ruby gem, which is, uh, something that you can install through, um, a, a program on your computer. It ships with OS 10. Uh, you can say gem install and then the name of the gem, which is playground booklet. And it will download the Ruby. It will install on your computer. And then you have access to, uh, the playground booklet, um, executable or, or command. So if you're on the command line, um, you can use that program that uh, that's been downloaded. It's written in Ruby. Your computer, like every every Mac, has Ruby built into it, and um, and yeah, so it's it's a handy language to use because I get to um, I get to write in Ruby, which is something you're guaranteed to have, and also because um, with Ruby gems I can specify dependencies, so I can say, you know, um, I really need to access uh, the JSON uh, parser, and I have access to that. And uh, I can say, okay, well, um, I'm just looking through the code here. Um, oh, so the XML parsing. Um, there is another Ruby gem that I depend on uh, to do that for me. So I can rely on other open source code uh, in order to build my tool. And it's kind of like that story idea, like the stories of a building. Um, because I have access to all this other code, I can write something a lot easier and I can write something a lot better with less effort. So the tool that you built, which you can also call a Ruby gem, yep. is called Swift Booklint. It's called playground-book-lint. Playground-book.lint. Okay, playground-book-lint. Mm-hmm. Okay, playground-okay. And so you build that gem in mm-hmm. Ruby, and then yep. you put it up online somewhere, like yep. in some Ruby dot directory online. Yeah, rubygems.org. And, Okay, and then that's where, so like for instance, CocoaPods has like a Ruby gem that's exactly. on rubygems.org. Okay, mm-hmm. and so you just run like gem or pseudo gem or whatever, uh-huh. install. Okay, cool. Wow, that's interesting. Learned something new today. Yeah. 
That's awesome. So um, I just saw something that Orta like put out, Danger. Is that also oh, yeah. like partially a linter or something like that? I wasn't entirely yeah. sure what Danger is like supposed to do. It seemed like something, it's like linting the MRs or PRs, pull requests, merge requests, so you don't have to like say, hey, you were supposed to put a comma here. Like mm-hmm. the Danger will do that part of the MR PR for you. Something like that? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Danger is a, a linter for pull requests and merge requests. Uh, it's it's basically a tool that um, runs on continuous integration. Um, I'm not sure if uh, your listeners are familiar with that, but the idea is that when you submit a pull request, um, continuous integration uh, like Travis or Circle CI, they'll listen for a pull request, notice it, and then download your code and run your unit tests against it. And so the idea is that you don't merge a pull request unless the unit tests pass. So as part of, a, of, of this uh, checking your unit tests, Danger can also check for things that uh, you want in your pull request that aren't necessarily something that belong in a unit test. So that can be to um, you know, indicate that you've tested on an actual device instead of just the simulator. That can be to uh, make sure that you have a changelog entry whenever uh, a major change has been done. Or um, we have one on Eigen that checks to make sure that the Swift compile times, like if we uh, add new Swift files. It analyzes how long each file takes to compile and lets us know if there are any like outliers. It's it's a very um, powerful idea, and we're still sort of experimenting to see, you know, uh, just how far we can push this idea of uh, of linting your pull requests. But uh, so far, it's been it's been a, a, a real valuable tool. So, would you still use Danger in conjunction with your local linter? Uh, no, actually, it, that's a good question. Uh, Danger really just is supposed to run on uh, continuous integration. You can test I it guess, locally. Sorry, I guess what I mean is would you still do your local linting and then also use Danger like for your CI, for linting your, your uh, PRs and all that? Uh, or, or at that point, do you not even need like a local linter because... I guess does that make sense? Like, yeah, would you it, still? That's a really good question, actually. Um, you might want a local linter if you want to find out uh, the problems before you've submitted the pull request. Um, so, for example, you could use um, SwiftLint, what you mentioned earlier. You could use that in order to check and see if there are any problems locally, and then Danger can also use that uh, on the CI to to see if there are any problems, and that could be okay. beneficial because maybe not everyone is running SwiftLint, um, but if if you're all running it on CI, then you don't have to be. So it sounds like Danger is doing a different job than like a, a Swift lint, like a language linter. Yeah, it's, it's doing okay. Sort of like a meta linter. <laughs> like is a, it kind of a new concept? Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Danger has been like under development for like about a year now, but it only had its its first like big release about a month ago. Okay, so then then that's something I'm going to keep an eye on because I was showing um, one of my DevOps guys like Danger and I was like, I don't entirely understand what this is, but it looks cool. So maybe we should keep an eye on it. Okay, so for those of you that don't know, uh, we're talking about continuous integration. Uh, we're talking about linting. We're talking about unit testing. Um, and these are things I would say that when you're just starting out, you can just kind of be aware of, but you do not need to know what they are, I would say. Um, I didn't start doing any of this stuff until when I just started, you know, working at Farmers. Um, and would you agree with that? Like, because I feel like when you're just starting out, there is so much stuff to learn. Do you mm-hmm. feel like people need to worry about learning continuous integration and linting and all this kind of stuff? That's and testing? 
That's a really good question. Um, and it, it's one that doesn't really have like a, a definitive answer. Um, testing is um, not just something that you do. It's also part of uh, developer culture that varies between different communities. Right. In the iOS community, testing is not a large part of our culture yet. Uh, that's something that Orda and I are trying to, to improve. Uh, other people are trying to improve it too. It's not just us. Um, but in, say, the, the Ruby community, um, some of the first code that someone learning you know, how to build a Rails app, some of the first code that they'll write will be unit tests because they want to do it from the beginning. And the real difference isn't just the culture, it's also the tools. Uh, Xcode support for unit testing isn't as good as um, RSpec and the tools that the Rails developers have. So it's, it's understandable that um, if it's harder to do on iOS, that uh, people do it later when they're learning how to program. That's really uh, really interesting. I never thought about it that way. To me, it was always like you have a goal. Your goal is to, let's say, build an app, right, or become an iOS developer. And, like, mm -hmm. these are the things I think you should learn. And testing was never, like, a main one. But if testing was, like, a part of, like, a more important part of the culture, then maybe, yeah, maybe it just would be more natural. Like, of course you're going to write tests. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm just getting into testing now, uh, so we're doing like extreme programming. So I'm, and I'm doing mm. test driven, and we're doing functional and reactive, and VVM, and like dependency injection, and all this stuff. And like I never thought I would like learn all this stuff so fast, um, but I still feel like people that are new to iOS, you know, there's just so much to learn that I, I feel like they can just focus on like the basics, which I feel like are the language, Xcode, mm -hmm. um, you know, the UI kit, like table view for the most part, and like, you know, the basic mm -hmm. UI kit stuff and like just basic MVVM. Yeah, um, exactly. And that, that's where the uh, Swift Playgrounds really come in too because you can learn that stuff in in a sort of isolated environment. So through my meetup and through the podcast and just being, you know, being active in the community, I meet so many people uh, that are new to programming and I remember when I was starting out, it was always like, what do I need to do right now to like get to where I want to go? Right. Mm -hmm. And let's say your goal is like, I want to uh, get a job as an iOS developer. And let's say, you know, I have maybe I've been studying for like six months or something like that. Like, what do you feel like is the most important thing to focus on uh, for someone out there? Let's say they ask you, they hit you up on Twitter, like, Ash, what should I be doing right now? What should I be learning? Like, I want to work at a place like Artsy, let's say, as an iOS developer. Like, what should I be learning? That's a that's a really good question. Um, and uh, like most questions, uh, it, it depends. Um, it's uh, <laughs> I wish I wish there was like a more um, like a, a, a better uh, all around answer to this, but it's uh, it's really tricky. Um, I worked with Orta in order to write a, a blog post. It's about um, 5,000 words long. I'll send it to you. Uh, and it's, it's a step-by-step. Step. Yep. Sorry, is it the one about like getting a job? And, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, okay, that was, a really, that was a really long. That was impressive. Yeah, I uh, worked on Sorry, it for ahead. a few weeks. Definitely. Um, and he goes over like the introduction emails from all the current members of our iOS team when they applied for the job. So you can see the email that I wrote when I uh, when I officially applied for Artsy. You That's see, right. That's what I was referring yeah. to earlier. Yeah, exactly. Like you can see our resumes. You can see exactly what we like went through, um, and the things that Artsy was looking for. And different companies are going to look for different things, but uh, generally, um, it's not a matter of like knowing something. Like you don't need to know all of UIKit like the back of your hand in order to apply right. for an iOS job. 
most companies, when they're hiring juniors especially, they're looking for the ability to think through a problem. So if they give you um, they give you a, a take-home programming problem, they want to see you know, how you come up with it and how you face uh, problems that you don't have the skills yet in order to solve. Um, so, uh, you know, make sure your, your fundamentals on, like, working through problems are good. Uh, there's an idea called rubber duck programming where you uh, talk to um, any, anybody, anything, like a rubber duck is the idea. You talk through your problem with the rubber duck in order to find the solution yourself. Uh, make sure you're familiar with that, and because that's basically what a good programming interview is going to be. Um, and uh, rubber duck problem, uh, programming, yeah. Rubber duck programming problem. Yep, exactly. Um, <laughs> I've never heard of this it, before. Yeah, right. Some people call it rubber duck debugging. It's basically when you're having a um, when you're facing a problem that you don't know how to solve yet, you talk it through, and that can be with a person. If someone's not available, that can be. Um, you know, yourself, that can be a, a rubber duck. You just need to talk it through with somebody. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. So make sure you're good at that. Um, and then uh, depending on which kind of company you're applying for, um, you know, see what they're looking for. Uh, in Artsy's case, they're look, we're looking for like um, art meets science background. We want, uh, you know, an appreciation of, of, you know, our goal is trying to make music, uh, sorry, make art as accessible and as popular as music is today uh, and we're using technology to do that when we you know look back 100 years uh, or so the phonograph came along radio came along all of a sudden you didn't have to afford to uh, listen to live music performed in order to hear music uh, you could listen to recorded music you could listen to music on the radio uh, technology took something that was accessible to only very few people and made it accessible to everyone and that's what we're trying to do with um, with art anyway um you know, oh, that's if, beautiful. If, thank you. Um, I, I that's, that's why I wanted to work for Artsy. So if you're applying to a company, find out what they're about, especially their engineering culture, and um, really make sure that you show off uh, how your values are congruent and how they align with the company's values and what they stand for. Beautiful. Very well said. So <laughs> what's, let's say something iOS specific, like what's one thing that someone could, could learn? Like, let's say if they came, if let's say if it was artsy uh, and they came for an application or an interview, what was like one mm -hmm. thing in iOS or Swift that like you would definitely want them to know? Like for instance, one of my members asked me, Garrick, should I be learning uh, core data or should I focus more on NSURL session? And you know, mm -hmm. I said, look, man, look and see what the job postings are, are saying, and that's the stuff you should learn. But, like, what do you think mm -hmm. are some of, like, the basic, like, foundational things that people, uh, like, one thing someone should know? Like, they should go and they should stop what they're doing and learn it, like, right now if they haven't learned it already. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I feel like something very foundational to how all apps are written is uh, memory management, and I know it's something that we don't really think about as much with Swift, but it's still there, and uh, even though it's it's automatic, uh, sometimes it doesn't work as you expect it to out of the box. So read about ARC. Read about that. Sorry, ARC stands for Automatic Reference Counting. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, it was introduced <laughs> in 2011. It's replaced the garbage collector on the Mac. Um, iOS never had a garbage collector, so it just replaced uh, manual memory management, uh, which you'll sometimes see as auto release uh, pool. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Arc still has auto-release pools, but um, but you don't have to manage them manually anymore. Um, okay. Manual yeah, memory I never... management is like 
this really weird system where you like need to retain an object when you're interested in, in uh, sending messages to it and uh, you release it when you're no longer interested in it and it, it's a whole bunch of overhead. Humans are very bad at it. It's something that um, the machine automates and it's, it's thank goodness for that. Yeah, I'm so glad I don't have to think about that. I remember yeah. when ARC was released at DubDub, it was mm -hmm. one of those moments again where it was like, ah, oh, and I was like, okay, yeah. this seems pretty important. And as long as it, you know, because if that was another thing I had to learn as a programmer, mm -hmm. like new to programming, it was oh, like, yeah. it would just make it that much harder. Like going exactly. back to Interface Builder, like because Interface Builder, it was like one less thing I had to like worry about in code. So it made it that much easier. Okay, so mm -hmm. learn about automatic reference counting. That's good. I like that. Yeah. I haven't heard that. I think it's interesting because Swift does do a lot of that, you know, mm -hmm. um, manual or automatic memory management. But at the same time, Swift fav uh, favors these trailing closures, mm -hmm. right? It's like whenever we say like something is more Swifty, it's like usually means that you're doing some kind of like trailing closure thing, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it's like, uh, which forces you to think about memory management, right? And so mm -hmm. the whole like weak, unowned, um, uh, weak, unknown strong oh my right that one article and it's like oh, yeah. still trying to understand it and actually i read your yep. blog post this morning about um is there something like struggle right and like struggling yep. with something and when i think of like struggling with one thing in swift mm -hmm. or in ios it's like the whole weak self strong oh my or whatever because we're yeah. doing um we're doing uh we're using swift bond and anytime mm -hmm. like you're doing an observe like anytime you observe um some type of observable you have to like say unowned self and then yep. I don't know. It's like, I'm still trying to, I get it. It's like, this has a pointer to that, that has a pointer to the other thing and they keep each mm -hmm. other in memory. But I still like, I'm trying to understand that. Yeah, Anyways. definitely. It doesn't come naturally to anybody. Yeah. Oh man. That's really good. Really good advice. Thank you so much. Okay. So we are, uh, we are at the end and I wish we could talk more. I think I'm going to have to have you back on so we can have, a dedicated conversation <laughs> about uh, functional reactive um, MVVM because and test driven, um, which I feel like it goes really well together mm -hmm. um, because of you know these very discrete objects. Like for us at Farmers, we write unit tests mostly just for our services, our model objects if if it, if necessary, and our um, our view models um, and our views and view controllers. We test using UI test, you know, mm -hmm. UI test automated UI testing, Perfect. and then. You know, and then how like dependency injection like works with that. And I don't know, it's and it, at first, like, because it's a totally different way of thinking, I feel like, like a yep. functional reactive. Um, it's like a to totally different way of thinking. And it took me so long to kind of like let that settle in. And once it did, I can't imagine like doing it another way. I don't know, for some reason, I just like it <laughs> so much better. I don't know. Do yeah. you feel the same no, way? Definitely. Oh, yeah. I was working on um, Eidolon, which is completely written in like a RX Swift MVVM style, uh, and then I went to Eigen to build the live auction stuff, and it didn't have a it didn't have a FRP library, and I just felt so like it was almost paralyzing. Like I didn't know how to structure my my code. It like it's giving me chills right now just like thinking about like thinking back to it. Um, yeah, I understand. <laughs> So are you? So you're using anytime you're doing reactive, um, at least for new projects, you're doing using RX Swift. It depends on the project. Um, I really like RX Swift, um, but RX Swift also introduces a lot of abstractions that not all developers are familiar with. Um, so 
for Eigen, that project we used Interstellar, which is a very, very lightweight project, uh, lightweight uh, FRP library, um, specifically just so that anyone else coming into the code base doesn't need to understand all of functional reactive programming in order to uh, work in the code base. Um, but for projects that I'm the primary maintainer of, uh, I definitely use RxSwift. Okay, because we, we did something similar. Uh, we're using Swift Bond, but we're thinking about moving to Rx or something else because the maintainer of Swift Bond says, like, don't start new projects with it. I'm going to be doing this whole reactive kit thing. Mm. So I started playing with Rx Swift, and it was coming from Swift Bond, which I think is similar to Interstellar, like more lightweight. It mm-hmm. just seemed like I didn't get it. Like, there was a couple, I thought, like, in. I was like, oh, no, in Swift Bond, we just do this. You know, we just do it this simple way. It's, it's like, simple. And <laughs> in Rx, it, like, it wasn't working. So there's, like, there's definitely some learning curve. Um, but it sounds like you you seem pretty confident in, in Rx Swift. So, like, would you, I don't know, like, what are your thoughts? Like, because uh, we're thinking about maybe moving to Rx Swift. Like, mm. it seemed, like, once I get the hang of it, I'm sure, like, it's just kind of that same thing, that learning curve probably, right? Yeah, exactly. The learning curve on Rx Swift is a little higher. Um, it's like same as Reactive Cocoa. They're both super powerful frameworks, and uh, and you can do a lot with them. But they also require a lot of upfront learning and understanding first. Okay. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I I think uh, Rx Swift is the way to go in the long run. I think it's a better way. Like writing functional reactive programming is a better way to write code in general. Um, because it's it's a higher up on the abstraction curve too, and uh, you know it takes a little bit of upfront learning. But once you have that done, um, then you can be really proficient, and you can write uh, you know code that doesn't have as uh, as many bugs in it, that kind of stuff. Um, right on, right on. Okay, so that was a quick little um, teaser of maybe a future <laughs> uh, FRP and VVM talk. Um, man, yeah, it's super fun. Okay. So before we go, a couple things. Uh, where can people contact you online? Sure. Uh, the best place to find me online is just Twitter. Uh, my username is Ash Furrow, just my name. Uh, I also have ashfurrow.com as my blog. You can go there and uh, check it out. Let me know what you think. If someone has a question uh, and they're thinking about like uh, reaching out to you or like if you were to accept questions, like what would you say like people could get the most value from you? Like are you best in... Like, I mean, I asked you that MVVM question, remember about, well, maybe you don't remember, but it was like, uh, can view models be made up of other view models? Or like, right. maybe yep. I'm thinking like a view controller can have multiple view models. Mm-hmm. And you literally were like, I don't know, like, let me know what you think. Like, <laughs> go try it out and let me know. And I'm like, okay, interesting. Like if the, if the guy who I see as like maybe one of the bigger like MVVM people doesn't know the answer, that means it's like kind of new territory, it seems like, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's new territory. I mean, I don't have all the answers, partially because I don't know if there are definitive answers for a lot of the questions that, that I get. Um, the best thing you can do is if there's like a question you have around a specific uh, framework, uh, you know, open a Stack Overflow question or open an issue on the repo, the repo and send me a link to it. Um, I'd much prefer to answer in public so that other people can benefit from my answer. Okay, so it sounds like um, you're open to other kinds of questions, not just MVVM. Like, or yeah, is there exactly. anything in particular you like answering? I'll answer it all. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> right on. Yeah, exactly. Where do you find the time, man? 
I don't always. I mean, sometimes I have to say no, um, or sometimes I'll, I'll tweet a link to the question instead and let other people get it. Sometimes by the time I get your email with the link to the to the question, someone else has already answered it. I mean, that's that's also a, a benefit of having you ask the question in public first. Right on, right on. Okay, so before we go, very last question. Oh, it's not really a question, but it's one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Wow. Um, try to participate in the community early and often and be kind to each other and be kind to yourself. Beautiful. Love it. Totally agree, man. If, if without my meetup, I probably wouldn't be here right now. My meetup members like totally helped me get to where I am, just like all the positive feedback and stuff. Awesome. Um, yeah, thank you so much for that. All right, Ash, thank you so much for coming on today, telling us your story, coming from Canada to Amsterdam to New York, <laughs> and then you know working at Artsy and just being like an open source ninja and uh, making art more accessible and uh, being super cool to everyone out there in the Swift community. Nice. And yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to come on. And yeah, just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends. Swift Coders.